JM and the AM on a Friday, Erev Shabbos, Shira, Erev Shabbos, Parshas, Bishalach, candlelighting time in New York, 445. Uh, make sure you know when things start where you are. Again, 445, candlelighting time in New York. And, um, yeah, I, I guess we could say it's still early Shabbatot, so make sure you know when things start where you are. Uh, Rabbi Stephen Przansky is with us live via telephone. He is Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation B'nai Yisurin here in Teaneck, New Jersey, Israel Region Vice President of the Coalition for Jewish Values and Senior Research Associate at the Jerusalem Center for Applied Policy. We also love having him on the air. Rabbi Stephen Przansky, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM. Nochem, thank you. Good Erev Shabbat. Tadaraba, a very... Very difficult week in Israel, to say the least. You being there feels it more than we do on this side of the world. Can you put into words what it is for the Jewish people in Israel when this type of week occurs? Well, the most frightening uh, two words in Hebrew these days are hutar lepersum. That's how the newscasters begin the broadcast of The Fallen. Uh, just two hours ago, I heard uh, someone else was announced. Uh, Eli Ranjeger, Hashem Kamadamo from Tel Aviv, fell in the southern part of the Gaza Strip. So you listen to the news, and those words obviously uh, catch your attention right away. Your heart skips a beat. And, uh, yeah, it's not a simple situation, but we know... The cause is just, and despite the casualties, the ruach, the spirit in the country remains strong. And I would say, unlike you found in democracies in the last uh, 56 years, I think the spirit has intensified as the war goes on. Because of the sacrifices, nobody wants to see what we've seen several times in the past already, a sudden end to the conflict, a status quo, a stalemate. And then just the enemy rebuilds and does this again. People want, at least in terms of Gaza, some type of finality. That Jews should be able to live in the area surrounding Gaza without having the expectation that rockets can fall on their heads at any time. And certainly not that the enemy, brutal as they are, will decide one day again to launch this type of a vicious uh, genocidal attack. So I think it is a difficult week. Part of the problem of fighting in a congested urban area where the enemy lurks among civilians, and frankly, the so-called civilians happily lurk among the enemy, with an inability to distinguish between them, it makes it very difficult. L- let me show you one, share your listeners, one vignette that I think illustrates the point. I was in Europe this week and I was watching one evening independent TV from Britain. And they had a report about a Gazan man who was waving a white shirt. And then you don't see it, but he was shot and killed. Uh, presumably by Israeli soldiers. And the reporter is uh, angry, and one of the prime minister's questions in the parliament that they showed was a member of parliament asking the prime minister, telling about this case and saying, why isn't this considered a war crime? 
And the prime minister didn't really give an answer, pro or con, and just said that he issued a general support for human rights. But I, I think the media, obviously, but also many people lack the context in which these events take place. Two months ago, a Gazan walking on the street with a white flag or white shirt, presumably surrendering, was approached by Israeli soldiers who were then shot at by snipers, meaning the Arab with his white flag was used in order to lure Israeli soldiers out of their fortified position to come to his rescue, take him into custody. The, the, the enemy is so depraved, so debased, that they've taken this universal symbol of surrender and uses it just as another means of aggression. So for Israel, then this becomes a lose-lose situation. Here you have a Gazan waving a white shirt. If you approach him, they're going to kill you. If you don't approach him and just let him walk, he's going to discover your position and then report it to the enemy, to Hamas. So how do you deal with such an enemy? That really becomes the question. And therefore, I would just urge everyone to take what they hear in the general media, the International Court of uh, Injustice or whatever, with less than a grain of salt, because it's all bias, it's all hypocrisy, and we know this in Israel, and therefore we remain strong. And the answer to your question has no good answer. That's that's also the uh, one, one of the uh, one of the difficulties that Israel goes through. It seems they're in so many situations, and war war brings this on. We've discussed this that, uh, that many questions are asked, and there are generally no good answers. Just one answer may be a drop better than the other. By Steve. Przanski's with us. Lots to unpack about what you just said. Uh, you're hinting toward or directly uh, recommending maybe a long war, uh, something that's been discussed many times um, uh, as analysts look at what uh, Israel is doing or what the future of Israel uh, would look like uh, if, in fact, they'd end now um, their movement against uh, Hamas versus whether they would continue for quite a while. Um, it's interesting that you say the spirit's never been greater. We worry about the collective stamina of the Israeli army. We know that there are additional practical problems that people are being taken out of work, and uh, you know, and and uh, uh, and therefore that affects the economy and in, in, in so many industries in a, in a direct way. Um, with all that being considered, are you still convinced? that Israel has the wherewithal to, in fact, dig in and continue what they're doing for months at a time. So it's not my place to advocate for a long war. I mean, I wish uh, Hamas would surrender today and release all the hostages. But that being said, the only way in which we're going to achieve some measure of security in that region is to utterly defeat Hamas region. I make it sound like, you know, it's the American Southwest and you're in New Jersey. It's 45 minutes from my home by car that we're talking about. It's not very far. We are entitled to live lives in which our people are not attacked, that we do not have to expect rockets and missiles on our homes. That is not a normal way to live. So Israel now is doing a good job in rotating out groups of uh, reservists and getting them back into the uh, workforce and bringing in others. Because you're right, you can't sustain a reserve army 
in its entirety for six, nine, 12 months, but you can do it in shifts. And that's what they're doing. All in all, Israel's economy remains very strong. It's a very adaptive, obviously very creative society. And so we are able to sustain a war for a long time. Someone mentioned yesterday that we don't recall this, but in the Yom Kippur War, which was now 50 years ago, there were still uh, Israeli army units in Syria for a half a year afterwards. Yeah. Not to mention in Egypt. So, yeah, you have to do what's necessary. I think the more important point is that now these miluimnikim, these reservists, are coming together, issuing statements, publicizing proclamations that they themselves sign that we want to see the war to its conclusion. We don't want to stop. Meaning, do not stop on our behalf. Because if, unfortunately, what happens, God forbid, is a stalemate, then really all those lives are lost in vain because we are back to square one. And then the so-called international community starts showering billions of dollars again on Gaza, on Hamas. They rebuild all the infrastructure, and we're back in the same place five, six years from now. Rahman al-Islam. So this is a war. It has to be a long war. I think Hamas anticipates that the Israeli public will not have the stamina to see it through, and therefore we have to maybe surprise ourselves and shock them. Yeah, if there are other incidents, tragedies like this week, there'll be a new anti-war movement uh, arising in Israel, small at first, and then it will gain steam if we do not show concrete achievements. But, thank God, we have shown concrete achievements. Obviously, the level of... uh, Missile attacks is dramatically reduced. Entire swaths of Gaza are being cleared out of the enemy. Much of Gaza is now uninhabitable, which should engender a discussion as to what is the future, what should be the future of the residents of Gaza. And if you ask me, I'm sure you're about to, it should definitely not be in Gaza. Because there's no economy, there's no infrastructure, there are no residences. It's no place to live. And a world that can absorb in a year, within the last decade, five million Syrians, they certainly could absorb a million and a half uh, Gazans, especially all those supporters of Hamas around the world. And it's a bitter irony that Gazans remain now the only people who are not entitled to international protection, the seeking of a sanctuary outside the conflict zone during wartime. That is also enshrined in international law and in the uh, UN Charter, and yet it is not made available to Gazans simply because the enemy realizes that the presence of civilians is one of their weapons that they can use against Israel. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at com and the Siegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Everybody, Stephen Przanski is speaking with us from Israel. Um, you have a, a background in, um, in law. What, what do you make of the whole International Court of Justice? I mean, what do you think of the procedure? What do you think of the uh, likelihood of their decision, which we're expecting at any moment? What, what do you think of the – you look at this whole scenario. What do you think? 
Uh, let me go to the thesaurus. It's a joke. It's a farce. It's the epitome of hypocrisy. But people have to recognize that the International Court of Justice is selected by the General Assembly of the United Nations, which primarily consists of thuggish regimes. Most of the General Assembly is composed of dictatorships, not democracies. And that's what they call a court of justice. And they're the ones who are choosing the justices on this court of justice. So I would be shocked if they ruled in favor of Israel. I would assume that the whole purpose of the farce is to condemn Israel, but we should cut to the chase. What they're really doing in saying that Israel is acting in a genocidal manner, or should uh, they should now impose a ceasefire? What they're basically saying is that Israel is interfering with what Arabs construe as their natural right to murder Jews, and they're inter- we're interfering with that natural right by exercising our right of self-defense, meaning what the court of injustice will decide is that the Arab right to attack, murder, rape, devastate Jews supersedes the Jewish right of self-defense. Ad kedekach, that is the extent of the farce that we are confronting. There's an ongoing debate in Israel whether Israel should have participated Uh, or not. uh, What do you think about that? Personally, I think they should have ignored it. They, they should, or they should have gone and said their piece and then taken the uh, indictment and ripped it up, a la Chaim Herzog in the United Nations, right. because it is a joke. Hmm. And it's a sad commentary on the world that this becomes the uh, representative of uh, justice in the world. You know, it's interesting. So I, there are people in the community here that made comments to me that it's impossible. There's no way they're going to rule against Israel. And I, and I sort of, you know, said what you said, that this is an extension of the United Nations. We know what the UN always does. Why wouldn't they do it? Do, do you think people just, especially on this side of the world, just have you know, difficulty believing that, you know, those with supposed democratic values could possibly reach the conclusion that they're about to reach? Well, I would expect that there'll be a majority and a minority decision, that there will be a minority of justices who do not condemn Israel, but it's to be anticipated that most justices will. It's like the old justice system in the Soviet Union, all right, or even in Nazi Germany. We should remember they gave themselves the name International Court of Justice. Nobody chose them. Nobody Normal elected them. They are just the product of the corrupt nations that are part of the United Nations. I, I heard someone made an interesting suggestion before. Oh, it was Rabbi Goldstein of South Africa. The, the UN is beyond repair. What the world now needs is a, a, a new international organization just of democracies, just of freedom-loving people, just of nations that are committed to a Judeo-Christian ethic, because these nations are being overwhelmed by the despots across the world. We are outnumbered by them, and therefore any forum in which you're going to have uh, any decision put to a vote between 
those who favor democracy and freedom and those who support the uh, dictatorships and tyranny well, unfortunately the dictatorships and tyranny have the majority but the icj is a an international forum which is dominated by representatives of dictatorships i mean even look at the the the, the prosecutor so to speak south africa yeah. the african national congress all right so they're nominally a free country they're a democracy but they're so corrupt in their in their views, in their worldview, that it's the the height of insincerity that they should be the ones who are bringing forward this accusation against Israel. And really, the court is not entertaining at all even the fact of an attack on October 7th against Jews. Not just the, the horrific nature of the attack, but the attack itself. That should play no role. It's as if history began October 13th, when Israel invaded. That's when it began. Yeah. That's how debased the whole process is. Um, before we move on, this is the latest. The U.N. highest court said Friday that Israel must take action to prevent acts of genocide by its forces in Gaza, must let more aid into the enclave, but the court did not call on Israel to immediately suspend its military campaign. The ruling in The Hague was an initial step in a case brought by South Africa that accuses Israel of committing genocide against Palestinians. The closely watched case has added to pressure on Prime Minister Netanyahu over Israel's war against Hamas. What do, what do you think of the um, of the action taken by certain families and friends of hostages to block uh, any humanitarian aid from getting into Gaza? Obviously, with the um, intent uh, that if the humanitarian aid uh, does cease, it's going to put pressure on Hamas to actually get to the table and arrange for a hostage deal. What did you think of that action? I support it because it's unprecedented in the history of the world that a nation that's attacked has to provide its enemy with assistance when we know that that assistance is going right to the terrorists who are attacking us. It just makes no sense. It, it would be as if the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor and then America responds and then we learn that Japan is running out of oil and food, and therefore America has to provide Japan with uh, these uh, provisions. It's insane. It's a, I mean, it's, because, it's, it's because, a of the absurd. Because the world and the media has convinced everybody that Gaza civilians uh, and, and supporting them is different than supporting the operations of Hamas. Yes, that's true. We all know that these Gazan civilians voted Hamas into power. Ah, so they threw out Fatah, but that's a different matter. They voted for Hamas, knowing that they are voting for a, a, a group of genocidal maniacs. That's where they voted. And we have to understand also the hypocrisy that's implicit, the, the duplicity in the game that they play. They extol martyrdom. They teach their young people, these children, how the, 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 the most noble ambition of a Muslim should be martyrdom in the killing of an infidel and especially the Jew. They want their people to die. They're proud when they die. But then to the Western audience, they say, look, we're being killed. They're being, we're being murdered by Israel, genocide. So on the one hand, they are extolling the virtues of martyrdom to one audience, their audience, to another audience, 
they are parading themselves as the victims of some type of aggression. The way that they manipulate truth and morality, justice, language is actually mind-boggling. The worst propagandists in history, I think, pale before what Hamas and its acolytes have been able to accomplish. But yeah, I think one mistake that Netanyahu made was the second day of the war saying that there'll be no aid to Gaza, not a drop of fuel, until all the hostages are released. And then under pressure, he came. Well, don't make promises you can't keep and don't make threats you're not going to carry out because now we are in the process of supplying our enemy with their needs so as they are better able to continue the war. That's, of course, insane. Speaking of Netanyahu, uh, if this does go on for quite a while, and, and you and I have already discussed in this conversation that it has the potential to go in that direction, I mean, at some point there has to be some change in Israeli leadership. I would assume that this this uh, um, point of view that, you know, we'll finish the war and then we'll get into the investigations and then we'll get to new elections, I, I would guess that order uh, is going to have to switch if the war goes on for too long. What do you think of the landscape politically at the moment? It's very volatile. The fact is, new elections are not scheduled, I think, until 2025. So you have uh, a number of years until they have to take place. And, of course, Netanyahu's government, understandably, properly so, took a big hit with the invasion for which uh, it was completely unprepared. And yet, there's always a sense that Netanyahu is going to cave under pressure and halt the uh, the counterattack, halt the offensive, and produce another stalemate. But to this point, he has not done that. He's been adamant in saying that the goals of the war remain the same, and we are going to see it to its conclusion. Therefore, Paul came out yesterday, he's back on top. The Likud is back on top. It's the uh, direct polls that Channel 14 publicized last night. Likud is back on top, and the right-wing bloc as it exists now is 57 seats. If the election took place today, the center left 53, the balance Arabs. So we're back really to where we were before the most recent election. But who knows? His political future is tied to a number of things especially, though, in this context, a satisfactory outcome to the war. And I say again, if the war ends in stalemate, then we have a problem with leadership because his leadership would have failed. His potential successors, a Gantz, a Lapid, are even worse in terms of their steadfastness. But then we really need to look elsewhere. Finally, Ari Brzezinski, you know the American Jewish community very well. Um, the, the issue of traveling to Israel is, um, is, a, is a passionate issue. Um, many people you know, understand and, and want to be in Israel at this time. For many, it's hard for us to not be there, frankly. And, and others are, uh, and, and, you know, and, and therefore they make the effort to go. Uh, others legitimately cite the prices and cite the, um, you know, the, the, the fact that, the, that Israel is at war right now, which limits certain things that families can or can't do. Um, and, uh, and they say that they'll postpone their trip, you know, for a future time. Um, I don't think I'm qualified as, as much as I'm taking a very strong position on this, because I think it has to be said by somebody. I, I don't think I'm qualified to be objective on this issue. 
You know the American Jewish community very well. You know how Israelis do or don't feel when people do come from other parts of the world. What do you think of this whole issue? I think Israelis appreciate the visits by American Jews, by Jews from across the world, because it is a show of support. But let's be frank, it's not a time to come on a family vacation. And certainly some sites that people would otherwise want to see are not going to be available. On the other hand, life is about more than a vacation. Sometimes it's just important to show solidarity just to show up, to show up at a Beit Avel, a house of mourning, show up at a a hospital. There are many organized tours, uh, army bases. Now there's uh, something uh, euphemistically called terror tourism. People go down to the devastated settlements around Gaza. I've been there twice myself. You should see it, especially that so many in the world now deny that it happened. But now it's real time. We could see exactly what they did and hear from the people who survived what their experiences were. That is worth more than, you know, lounging at a hotel in Tel Aviv, uh, the Mediterranean. Right. Because it intensifies the connection that all Jews feel with each other, and especially that all Jews should feel with the land of Israel. You know, when I was down south, I said to myself that I'm shocked, and it's such a terrible thing to say, I'm shocked that the Holocaust denial industry was not more successful. Because if they're willing and if they're able, with the media's help in many cases, to deny what happened October the 7th, when, as you said, the proof is right in front of us at the moment, and the witnesses are literally testifying to us in front of us at the moment, then imagine when we look back at the episodes of many decades ago, uh, it, it is, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You're, we're fighting. Yeah, I, I think you know, the, the Gemara actually articulates what the challenge is. Normal people are not used to being brazenly lied to. Right. All right. This is such a chazaka. No one's going to lie in the face of a person who knows the truth and is standing on the truth. Unfortunately, that chazaka has gone by the wayside with the type of enemy that we have today. That's the extent of the evil. Truth means nothing. Morality means nothing. Nothing. It's a completely different value system with which Jews... And Westerners cannot identify. And while we're rolling our eyes when the denier is saying this, we have to remember that they're convincing 10 other people that they're right. 10 with social media, like my son said a few minutes ago to me, with social media, they're convincing not 10, they're convincing 10,000. Yeah. Uh, That's where the many people on college campuses today in America who just do not believe that the attacks took place on October 7th. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, well, we got to end on a positive note. It's Erev Shabbos Shira. You know how special a Shabbos this is. You know how we are able, even uh, even uh, centuries later, uh, to, uh, to laud the one above for the incredible miracles that he's performed for us way back when, and, of course, all the way until today. What are your thoughts on this Erev Shabbos Shira? <laughs> Hashem Yimloch Le'olam Vod. That's how the Shira ends, that God reigns forever. We see that in our history. I mean, just think, the Kriyat Yamsuf was over 33 centuries ago. Thir- 33 centuries ago. Yeah. And yet here we are today proclaiming the exact same words, the same message, facing similar threats, 
and knowing that in our day, just like then, we have the support of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we have the commitment of our people, we have the, the, the strength of will and character and the Torah, and therefore we will fight the Milchamot Hashem, God's battles, until we see the day of Hashem Yimloch Le'olam Vod with the appearance of the only true leader who can uh, lead the Jewish people, and that's the Melech HaMashiach. Kalakavod, thanks so much. Uh, Looking forward to reuniting with you in the Holy Land. Thanks for joining us today. I look forward to it. Thank you. Shabbat shalom to all the listeners. Rabbi Stephen Przanski from Israel. Always a delight to speak with him on JM in the AM.